I was talking with a brother yesterday and as we were talking, he shared a testimony with me. Thank you, worship team. He shared a testimony with me that I thought that lines up exactly with what I want to, I feel like the Lord put on my heart to preach from the word today. So I'm going to ask Craig King to come and share some thoughts from his heart and his recent experiences and what God's been saying to him. Would you give Craig a hand this morning, would you? On November 19th of last year, my 21-year-old son took his life. And I know a lot of you have been on this journey with me. I've learned that there are two parts. There's the grieving process, which is internal to that. And when it happened, I was in such grief, I couldn't even speak at the funeral. But there were things I wanted to say, and I never got that chance. And then there's the mourning, which is how you express what you've gone through. And you guys are all part of that right now because I'm mourning. I'm still mourning my son. November 19th was a Saturday. Most of you who know me know that I love college football. And I was watching the game in my favorite chair when I got a phone call from, my, from his mom, from my ex-wife. And she said, pray, pray right now. The paramedics are trying to revive Benjamin. He tried to take his life. And so me and my wife, Judy, we started praying right then. And after a few minutes, I thought, well, I'm not doing this alone. I called my dad. I texted him. I texted. We have such a blessed church. I texted all my brothers that are in our life group and then all the other men that I knew that I could think of to pray with me. And, uh, and they were praying. But 15 minutes later, I got the call that I didn't want to hear ever. She said, he's gone. He's gone. I went in the kitchen, and I told Judy, and the neighbors had to hear it when she said, no, 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 you can't have him. You can't have him. Very few people will ever understand the mixed-up mess of emotions that I've had since then. Now, if you've lost someone very, very close to you, then I know you understand the loss. I understand that you know the loneliness. This happened right before Thanksgiving, and I didn't go anywhere for Thanksgiving. Me and Judy had Thanksgiving quietly by ourselves. We didn't go to the Christmas party. Because I couldn't be with happy people. I didn't feel happy. I didn't want to be around anybody. I just wanted to be by myself. But some things you don't think about is I walk out of our bedroom and as soon as I'm alone, I feel that grief, that loss, that my son's no longer there. He loved our dog. I can't take my dog for a walk without talking to him and saying, don't you miss him? Don't you miss him? He spent a little time as a mail carrier and when our mail carrier comes by who just made friends with Benjamin and encouraged him to have the job, I can't see or drive by without feeling that loss. So those of you who have been through that, you understand that. But when someone takes their own life and you're that close to them, there's another emotion. There's guilt. Most of you, I hope you never, ever have to feel the guilt. Benjamin has five brothers and sisters. Six, I'm sorry. I'm going to name them off. Tyler, Summer, Jared, Alex, Grayson, and Zach. And they uh, all showed up at the funeral. They all were there, and they shared their experiences. They all felt guilty. We all felt like we could have said something. We should have recognized the sign. We should have been able to figure out how to, you know, how to stop it, how to do something anything but as a father 
There's a deeper amount of guilt that comes with being the priest of my home. Being the one that wanted to try to share the hope of what I have in me. I just felt so guilty and I still feel guilty over that. I feel guilty that I wasn't the father that my children needed. I want to apologize to all my kids right now. I was building a business. I was away on trips. I was doing my own thing, and I should have been there more for them. And so I exhort you fathers, don't miss the opportunity to love your children. And here's the deepest guilt is the fact that I know most people, most people, human beings, get their view of God, their God concept, from how their father was. And I was a miserable failure as a father, and I just want to apologize for that. And I don't know what else to say, except that was just part of the, uh, part of the process of, uh, of the grief. But I was also confronted by another emotion that I didn't expect, and that was betrayal. I felt betrayed, believe it or not, by my son, because he just didn't open up, he didn't talk to me, he didn't let me know all the talks that we had about God, all of the, the conversations that I had, he just didn't, he didn't share. Because if he had, I felt confident that I could have changed something in his life, you know? And then I felt betrayed by God. Because of all the times that I had prayed that God would prove himself real. And I can remember, as soon as we moved to Gunnersville, we had a family reunion, and I had all my kids in town. And we got there, and we were having a meal. And uh, I said, listen, guys, I'm getting ready to turn 60 years old. And I said, I don't want a gift. I don't want anything from you guys except one thing. You guys know how strongly I believe in an afterlife and in God and in Jesus and how, how strong I believe in eternity and all I'm going to ask you to do for my 60-year anniversary is this next year, will you please, please, please just consider your relationship with God? I'm not asking for a decision right now. All I want you to do is just seek him out for yourself and let God prove to you that he's real. That was my prayer. And so I felt betrayed that I didn't get the answer to that prayer, at least not the way I expected to. One of the things that's happened through this process is I have been, uh, I don't know where each one of my kids are. I can't tell you because I can't look into their hearts, okay? But I've been drawn, very drawn, to try to learn how to witness, how to talk to people that are either atheist, agnostic, or they just don't care. And so I started a course that we know a little bit. It's called Alpha. And I picked up the book that they handed out, and I opened it up, and the very first chapter was exactly Ben. It was exactly Ben. The question said, how do you make a shark happy on a sandy beach? The night before he took his life, he told his brother he felt like an alien. <laughs> That describes that, doesn't it? How do you make a shark happy on a sandy beach? You can't do it. Do you set up a sprinkler? Do you feed them sea otters? Do you give them a girlfriend? What's going to make a shark happy? You can't because we weren't designed for the beach. And the problem, I think, with most Christians and even most people is they may not feel like they're on a sandy beach, but they're happy in the aquarium and as Christians, we don't tell them that there's more than an aquarium. We weren't built for the aquarium. There's an eternal life in an unending ocean that God has prepared us for. So Benjamin took his life because he felt like he was on a sandy beach. And that whole thing about feeling betrayed by God, I, I answered myself that question when I remember the very last conversation that I had with Ben about God. We were sitting on my front porch in Gunnersville, and uh, I was talking to him about the invisible attributes of God. And I said, Ben, I said, you know, I've always understood that God is omnipotent. Now, when you've got seven kids total, they all have a super, you know, they have, they have, they have, they have fantasies about superheroes, right? 
I mean, they're suit, they like Superman or they like all these superheroes. Well, God is the superhero of all superheroes. He spoke the world into existence. I believe in the Big Bang Theory. I think God said, bang, and it was there. And if it's still expanding, it's because he's causing it to expand. I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist and believe that it came from nothing. Okay? So I talked to him about how powerful God is. And I understand omnipotence from the standpoint that there's not... He, he raised people from the dead. Okay? He, he caused armies to come alive that were dry bones at one time. He, he parted the sea. I mean, there's nothing that was too hard for God. I understand omnipotence. I think about omniscience. There's nothing that God doesn't know. You know, I've challenged my kids sometimes. I say, what would happen if you were playing a grand mass, you know, chess master? I mean, how many moves could you think ahead when this guy is 15 or 20 moves ahead? God knows every move. God's always known every move. Okay, we discover things because God put those mysteries there for us to discover. There's nothing ever that God has ever discovered. He just made mysteries for man to discover. So I understand a little bit about omniscience. But I always had a hard time with omnipresence. I just didn't understand how God could be everywhere all at one time. And again, now I'm talking to Ben, and I said, but Ben, then it, then it dawned on me. Because I think about the wind, and there's a verse of Scripture that says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. But think about the wind right now, Ben. There's somebody on a mountain somewhere, and the wind is just blowing in his face. And there's somebody else on a sailboat in the Caribbean, and the wind is blowing that boat around. And right now, we're sitting on the porch, and you can feel the wind. Everyone's having a unique experience with the wind, no matter where they are. And I said, Ben, the next time you feel the wind in your face, I want you to know that that's the presence of God, or at least God trying to remind you of his presence. And if you're sitting here right now and you don't feel the wind, do what I've done for the last 71 days when I think about my son. Just go like that and just... The breath that you're breathing in right now is a gift from God. <clears throat> I wish I could tell you that was the end of the story, but it's not. Because 11 days ago, a week ago Wednesday, I just about joined my son. I literally mean, I feel like I had died it was something I'd done every day for the last 15 years. I'd just take a handful of vitamins and pills, and one of them was a big old uh, fish oil pill. I popped them in my mouth, and I took a drink of water, and they got to right here, and they stopped. It wasn't in my throat. It was right in the middle of my esophagus. I could tell there was something hard that was just packed there. And so I did what any smart guy would do, and I grabbed that bottle of water, and I took another drink of water, trying my hardest to swallow it down. Literally within 30 seconds, this is all I remember, I tried to yell out because I, Judy was in the house, but I didn't get anything out. I fell down on my hands and knees toward the shower, and that's the last thing I remember. That's the last memory I have until I felt like I was coming out of a very dark, very bad dream. My body were pins and needles. Um, I heard somebody yelling. And I, I was trying to figure out who was yelling and why they were yelling and why I was having this bad dream, and then I recognized that it was Judy sc screaming in the phone at 911. 
She's saying, you got to get here now. you got to get here now. He can't breathe. He's unresponsive. He's not, he's not moving. I can't turn him over to give him CPR. I can't do anything. By the time I came to my senses a little bit, I realized, and she thought I had had a heart attack because when she came in the bathroom, I was face down on the floor. My arms were to my side. I was rigid. She couldn't turn me over because my arms were down by my side. She tried to turn me over because she thought it was a heart attack. She was going to try to restart my heart, but she couldn't turn me over. So the only thing she could do was turn my face towards her face. And she took the deepest breath that she could take, and she blew it into my mouth and my lungs. She, she, she breathed the life literally back into my body. If it had been Thursday, she would have been at her dad's. If it had been Friday, she'd have been at her dad's. But it was Wednesday. She somehow knew something was going on, or she stumbled upon me, or God brought her into the bathroom at just the right time. But it was that breath that dislodged those vitamins. Otherwise, my kids would have been flying back into town to have another funeral, and I feel confident of that. That's not... And the reason I know it's true is because I spent the rest of the day in bed just shaking, nauseated, throwing up because I knew how close I had come to meeting my maker. When you cut the air off from your own lungs, you die physically. And that's what happened to Benjamin. He stopped breathing and he died. But when you cut the spirit of God off by refusing to believe in him, you die spiritually, and that's far, far worse. The longest any of us can expect, maybe 90 or 100 years. But God is an eternal God, and he's got an eternal ocean of goodness for us. And I'm a testimony to tell you, you're not promised tomorrow. It may not be like I did. I was almost a statistic. Twelve people a day die of choking deaths. But you're not promised tomorrow. It could be on your way home or it could be whatever. So I just encourage you to uh, make your decision for God and stick with it. I appreciate that. I know you do. I know you do. The thing that gripped me, I mean, all of that is gripping in my heart, but the thing that really gripped my soul yesterday as he shared this with me was this. His determination to figure out how to share the gospel with people. People like Ben... Can I tell you, there's bins that live in your neighborhood. There's bins that you work with. There are bins that come in these doors and you don't ever know it. But as a congregation, we know it, don't we? Unfortunately, this is not the first suicide that's affected this church. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to abbreviate what I wanted to say today, but I, I, I'm not sure that I can say anything more compelling except the Word of God. I'm just going to pray one more time. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that will repent and turn away from old attitudes that take so much for granted. Let us repent of half-hearted love for the loss that we bump up against every day. Help us repent for our lack of compassion, our lack of urgency, our lack of courage. And God, we want to be the hope for the bends 
of this community that we are around and have access to. Help us see them. Help us feel their pain. Give us words to say. Give us faith that will dare believe that the gospel will be made clear and compelling to their hearts that they might turn and get off the sandy beach into the wonderful, endless ocean of your love and presence. In Jesus' name, can you say amen? I was just a kid, but I remember the flower children revolution of the 60s. Hippies. Anybody ever seen a hippie? It's popular now, but there's, it's not a very good picture, but I'm, I just work with what I had. I mean, this wasn't in my personal collection. I found that online. <laughs> I don't know these people, okay? But for those of you that were either there or you studied it, by the way, the hippie movement affected our whole lifestyle today. It affected hairstyles, clothing styles, attitudes. But it wasn't all love and peace, man. There were violent protests across the nation. There were people dying on a regular basis from LSD, psychedelic drugs. There was a massive shift in moral attitudes about sexuality that this nation's never recovered from. At the same time, there were, there were uh, civil rights protests across the nation and people dying for all the wrong reasons. It was a very turbulent time. It was a very scary time. It was the same decade that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, that Robert Kennedy was assassinated, that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It was a violent, turbulent, disturbing, scary time for America. And if you weren't even born then, you really can't appreciate that. Except... It's a whole lot like today. But in the middle of that, God's Spirit was blowing. And across this nation, young people that had been messed up with all kinds of crazy ideas and, 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 and just wicked morality that was being championed as the new way amidst all the violence and all the drug abuse and all of the chaos. In the middle of that, God began to save hippies. And they began walking into churches just like this and giving their heart to Christ, barefooted, long hair, beards, beads, bell bottoms, psychedelic outfits. And it happened by the tens of thousands out of nowhere. And the church was caught off guard and many churches kind of stiffened up in their religious protocol and, and didn't welcome these young people that were seeking for the reality of what their revolution promised but couldn't give. But there was a movement of God in the middle of that mess. And my question for you today is, can he do it again? There's four questions we got to answer. First one is this, is the destruction of our nation inevitable? Now, I, I, I'm coming from the story of Jonah. For those of you that have been with us over the last several weeks, I've preached messages from Jonah because let me just go back and tell the story quickly. Jonah was a prophet of God in Israel. God said, go to Nineveh. He said, no way, Jose, and took off in the opposite direction. Storm happened. They throw him in the sea. He gets swallowed by a big fish. And after three days of mulling his 
bad decision over and over. He repented. God had the fish spit him up on the beach and he took a 550 mile hike to Nineveh. But he didn't want to. His heart was not right. His feet were going in the right direction, but his heart was still in Tarshish. Well, he finally arrived there and he began to circumnavigate this huge city for those days. It was a huge metropolis. And he began going to all the hot spots where people gathered, the marketplace, the city gate where they had court. The, he would go to the, to the temple. He went everywhere and he began to say a short, straight message. And it was this, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah was a match that lit a spiritual fire that transformed a nation. Jonah with a horrible attitude but still obeyed was the match that lit a spiritual fire that transformed a whole nation because Nineveh was the capital city of a nation. That phrase, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown is the Hebrew word hapak. It means overturn like you flip the table upside down or a plate upside down. Or it can mean not overturn, but turn around or transform. And there was a double play on this word. Either Nineveh would be overturned or Nineveh would be turned around. And it had everything in the world to do with how they responded to the message of truth. Somebody, somebody had to tell them the truth. Jonah knew that God's mercy could forgive even Nineveh. I've described to those of you who've been here through this series, I've described to you why he hated Nineveh. They were people who would take over a city, skin people alive, and tack their skins to the city walls. They were people who would impale people on stakes and stand them up in the ground outside the walls until they died wiggling on those stakes, and then their bodies would rot. They were vicious, cruel, wicked people, and they were a national threat to Jonah's own nation. But Jonah knew the mercy of God. And he knew there was a high likelihood that they would repent and God would forgive. He was hoping they wouldn't repent because he wanted them to die. Here's what he said in chapter 4, verse 2. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God who relents from sending calamity. We know more about God's mercy since Jesus Christ has come and we celebrated it here today. We know more about His mercy than even Jonah knew. And I'm just going to tell you what I think. If God would relent and not judge Nineveh upon their repentance... He can still have mercy on America. So I don't believe the destruction of our nation is inevitable. We have to ask ourselves, is another awakening, spiritual awakening, with the wind blowing across our land and energizing Jesus' people again? Is it possible? Is it possible that all of the social and moral and political and racial conflict and, and corruption that eats at the heart of America, is it even possible anymore that God can turn this thing around? 
I believe that God's delay of judgment is an indication that he wants to extend mercy. He's got plenty of reasons to burn us. I'll say this, Jesus is ready for another Jesus people movement. But Jesus needs one thing for that movement. People. Please hear me. Jesus is ready. But for a Jesus people movement for today, for this nation where we're at, Jesus needs people. But you look at the person beside you and say, you're people. You're people. You're people. I think y'all knew that. How unlikely was it that a wicked nation like Assyria, which Nineveh was the capital city, how unlikely was it that this wicked bunch of criminal thugs, terrorist is what we would call them, how unlikely was it that this whole city would repent in sackcloth and ashes at one sermon declaring the truth of God's impending judgment? How unlikely. Except that God had prepared them for His message just like He had prepared the message for them. Because that's who He is. Here's what we need to remember is that it was the same God in Jonah's day. It was the same wickedness as today, but there's one difference. Jesus. 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 Jonah had never heard of or seen Jesus, but we have. Here's what Jesus said, Luke eleven thirty two. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. That gives me hope. So what holds God back? Is it demonic power that holds back this awakening? God is greater than any demonic force. He created angels who became demons and He can vanquish them with a word from His mouth. Amen. There is no demonic power that, that, that threatens God's authority or plan. I'm not saying there's not demonic powers. There are. I'm not saying they can't do damage. They can. I'm saying they're no match for God Almighty. They're no match for the authority that God has given you and me in Christ Jesus. They are no match. So what's the problem? What holds God back? Here, I'll tell you in one little phrase. Lack of laborers. Lack of laborers. What did Jesus say? One of the only prayers Jesus ever told us to pray was this one. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the fields because they are ripe to harvest. What holds back? A nationwide awakening. A lack of people who will cooperate with the Spirit. A lack of people who burn with a desire to see the lost saved. Who desire that we would never have to hear another story like Ben King. You say, well, we can't help that. I, I understand we can't help it exactly, but we can prepare ourselves. We can pray we can learn how, just like the desire of Craig's heart now, is to know how to share my faith with even atheists or agnostics. We understand the Spirit has to convict their hearts. We understand the Spirit has to generate faith. But we are the mouthpiece. Amen. 
And no one in this room is exempt from this responsibility and this privilege to speak the name of Jesus. None of us are exempt. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you Endeavor to do what he did and be what he was. Minus being Savior, none of us will ever be Savior. But we're walking representatives. We should be walking facsimiles of Jesus. We talk about sharing hope here. It's part of our vision statement. Sharing hope means we live in hope and we exude hope around other people that don't have hope. This starts across the street. And if it doesn't start across the street, then we're all hypocrites. I know that's a strong statement. And you can get get offended or whatever, but it starts at your job. It starts at your school. It starts in your family. The only thing that holds back this wave of His Spirit, the wind of His Spirit blowing across this nation again and bringing repentance and life is the lack of people who have a persistent desire or persistent in prayer and are ready to obey. They're available. They're available to at least share their story. They're available to lay hands on the sick anywhere they go and dare believe God will reveal His power and His presence and His peace there. You are that person. If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, you are that person. Don't let the devil cause you to wiggle out from under this privilege. Because this nation depends on people like me and you to demonstrate His love with our actions and with our words. Oh, well, I'll let my actions speak for me. At some point, you've got to explain to them the hope that is within you. At some point, and if you say, well, I don't know how to do that, you can learn. If it's important enough, you can learn. If you wanted to learn how to, to, to fix your washing machine, you'd learn. You want to learn how to make that latest art and craft on what's... Pinterest, you'll learn. It's not a matter of capability. It is a matter of availability. It is a matter of passion and compassion for Ben Kings that are dying everywhere. You say, I can't do anything about that. Oh yeah, you can do it for somebody. The average person has 67 people in their circle of influence or contact. And that's not necessarily the, those outgoing among you. Some of y'all got hundreds. I ain't talking about Facebook friends either. I'm talking about people you know. God has something for you to bring to that circle of influence. You can make a difference. This is one of our prayer priorities. Number four, God, give me confidence. You can and will use me to make an impact. Don't excuse yourself. I know, I'm running out of time. God changes a nation one person at a time. Y'all have heard the phrase, each one reach one? If you hadn't, you've heard it now. God's called each one of us to reach one of us. 
And when each one in the body of Christ across America begins reaching one, there will be a spiritual tsunami sweep this nation. But it depends on our response. You see, Jonah walked all through the city and he spread this message person by person, situation by situation, circle of people gathered by circle. And finally, it finally went through word of mouth till it reached the king. It doesn't appear that Jonah ever talked to the king, but somebody did. It got to him because he continued to reach one person after another, one person after another, one group after another. And he didn't even want to. The irony here is, is that Jonah didn't want an awakening for Nineveh. Please hear what I'm saying. What he really wanted was for his nation to stay comfortable, safe, and prosperous. That's all he cared about. And I'm not trying to be profane in any way. But in essence, what he was saying was let them go to hell. Every one of them. That's what he was saying. Burn them, God! I don't even want them to repent. I want you to judge them. All because his first priority was the safety and comfort and pleasure of his own nation, even at the expense of 120,000 plus people. I don't think any of us sit in that seat, but can I tell you, today we do stand in the shoes of Jonah. We stand between America and judgment. We stand between America and judgment. What will we do with this privilege? What will we do with this opportunity? What will we do with this responsibility? All of this, and it's not even Mission Sunday. That's next week. So, what is our cause? It's to glorify God and share the hope of Christ in a way that will change the world. That's our cause. There's David said, I think it was, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause that I can give my life to? Is there not a cause that, that is worth me spending or laying my life down for? If you don't have a cause like that burning in your heart, you have missed out on much of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because when you signed up to follow Jesus, you signed up for the cause. No, now listen. Every one of us are not necessarily called to make the step Jonah made, but we're called to make some step. A step that will take us across the line from comfort to risk and sacrifice. For the cause. You say, well, little is much when God is in it. That doesn't exempt us from a life of risk and sacrifice for the cause. Well, I'll give him a little bit and he can do a lot with it. He asks, <laughs> I'm sorry, he doesn't ask. He demands all. He demands all. He demands all. Say, will he take every dime I got? No, but every dime I got should be available. He calls all of us to hold our life up like this and say, I'm all in and everything I own and every privilege I have, everything, I, everything I'm about, it, it's available. What would you like, Lord? That's the opposite of Jonah's attitude, by the way. So we have to step across the line. What's required to see an awakening? What's required to see an awakening? We have to step across the line. Let me, let me put it this way. No risk or investment equals a nation go to hell. 
No risk and no investment equals a nation that will continue to implode. If God's, I'm not saying all that's on you. I'm saying all that's on the people of God in this nation. And we are people of God, amen? No risk or investment and a nation implodes. You say, well, what if all of us are all in? Every believer across America is not, uh, is not America at some point going to implode and be judged anyway. Maybe so, but it don't have to be on our watch. And by the way, there's probably 200, 250 million, depends on who, how, you, how you judge. Maybe, well, let's just say safely, 200 plus million people in America are on their way to hell. Say, so how can you know that? I don't. But only God knows that, right? And yet we know this, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men may be saved. Hopefully that's sufficient motivation for us. We have to ask ourselves this question. I know this is a tough message. I get it. That man's testimony is a tough message. Here's a question that I ask myself. Where am I playing it safe? Excusing my comfort addiction as necessary or for my family. I'm not saying we shouldn't do things for our family. I'm not saying we shouldn't provide for our family. I'm saying, is my addiction to my comfort zone staying intact, preventing me from offering things to God that He wants to use? So what do we do? What kind of risk do we take? We stand up and speak the truth in love. We stand up and speak the truth in love. What, what, what truth are we talking about? Oh, there's a lot of it. First of all, that Jesus is the only way and let, let, let people laugh us to scorn, but Jesus is the only way. Second of all, we speak up for the unborn and yet continue loving those that are aborting their babies. We speak up for racial reconciliation and equality and yet reject the violent responses of the woke mob. We speak up and we speak up for God's gender design and yet continuing to love those in the LGBTQ community knowing that it's not a, a, a harmless thing that, that, that is normal. No, it's destructive. And yet we keep loving the people that are caught up in it. We speak the truth, but we speak it with such love they come away more impressed with our love than, than thinking that we just hate people because we don't. But we're accused of being haters. We're accused of being bigoted. We're accused of all these things. And yet we still must speak the truth. But it better be saturated with the love of Jesus that laid his life down for abortionists, laid his life down for woke mobs, laid his life down for people that are confused about gender and sexuality. He loves them. Say, boy, you're worked up. Yes, I am. May it last beyond the pulpit. May it last beyond these doors today. I'm talking about me too here, folks. This has got to become a lifestyle, not a program the church carries on. Programs don't love people. People love people. Programs can present the truth, but what people really need is a demonstration and a vocalization of the truth to their lives specifically. Speaking the truth with love will not be possible without opposition and pushback. Please hear me, and I promise I'm going to get done, and we're going to go eat fried rice and egg rolls and make a donation to become part of the solution in Ecuador. 
And I beg you, all of you, go there. You can give a dollar, you can give a thousand dollars, but go enjoy and make a donation. And if you want to eat and you can't make a donation, tell me. I'll make sure we get a donation for you in your behalf. We cannot speak the truth in love in this culture without opposition. Settle it and decide that the lost Ben Kings of the world are worth what it costs to continue speaking the truth in love. What's the alternative? Just give them this culture. Just give them the nation. Let them do, I'll just hunker down and I'll protect me and mine best I can and we'll just wait till Jesus comes. Can I tell you that's not a God-honoring option? That's not a God-honoring option. We went out in this community last Saturday and we went to 80 businesses. 80 and prayed for people in every one of them. And there's hurting people that you are giving your money to at businesses in this community that you will go to tomorrow and you never know whether they are in Ben's shoes or not. And can I tell you, very few said they didn't want prayer. Most of them welcomed it. Some of them were overwhelmed that we came to them and prayed for them. Is God maybe allowing our comfort zones to shrink so that our hearts will turn to the lost? Something to think about. Because you see, Jonah's comfort zone got killed. He's sitting on a hill outside of Nineveh waiting on God to burn him, just hoping he would. And God let a plant grow up over him to give him shade from the desert sun. He was so happy as he watched for God's judgment to fall. And then God let a little worm eat at the root of the plant and it wilted overnight. And Jonah's angry. And if you'll read the last chapter of Jonah, God basically says, Jonah, do you really have a reason to be angry? And he just punks Jonah out and says, you care more about the stupid plant, your comfort zone, than you do about 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left. We have to embrace the mission instead of mere avoidance of discomfort. We're going to pray. Will we find our identity in Christ and His church more than from our worldly associations? Will we look to the family of God for support, encouragement, and assurance so that we can stand strong, speak the truth in love, and make a difference in our nation? Or will we just stay quiet, keep our religion at home in church only, so we can continue in our comfort zone? Guys, I'm sorry, I don't believe that's an option. just don't believe it's an option. I don't believe it's a godly option. We can do that. We can do that. But we'll never be happy doing that. We were saved. We were changed. We had the breath of God's Spirit breathed into our spirit. And with that came a cause. A cause that's worth dying for. And that's helping more people in this world discover the hope that is in Christ alone. I'm going to do, I just, I just have to ask this. If there's somebody here, you don't have hope in Christ. You don't have hope of life eternal. You, and hope means a, 
an expectation that it's coming doesn't mean a wish I may, I wish I might, I wish upon a star tonight. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a reasonable expectation of what's coming down the road. I'm expecting it. I'm looking for it. If you're here and you don't have the hope of heaven, you don't know the joy of sins forgiven and shame removed. You don't know the blessedness of Christ dwelling in you, who is our hope of glory. You don't know that, but you want to today. I just want to see your hand. Anybody in the house? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. For the rest of you. Do you want to be a partner with God in reaching the Ben Kings of the world? I just want you to stand up if that's you. I'm not asking you to become a preacher. I'm not asking you to become some kind of flaming evangelist. I'm just asking, do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want God to help you? Sometimes through prayer and trial and error, but do you want Him to help you? Touch people. I want you to raise both hands to heaven if you're standing. Father, we offer ourselves to you as your partner in spreading hope. We pray, God, that you would convict our souls to begin praying for the people that we see on a regular basis, particularly that you would help us know how to communicate your love to them and that, God, we would try even before we think we may understand how your Holy Spirit will move ahead of us. We ask you, Father, to help us all learn how to give a reason for the hope that is within us. We ask you, Father, by your Spirit, we ask you, God, to move among us, direct our steps, cause us to fast and pray that you would help us lead people to the hope that is in Jesus. And I want you to just look at me for a minute. Listen, I want to challenge everybody that's, particularly if you're part of this spiritual family, and if you're not, you can be, but I want to challenge you to make a commitment in your heart to fast one meal every week. We've done it during these three weeks of prayer. And if you don't understand why fasting is important, I ain't got time. I'm, all, I'm way over time now. I'm challenging you to make a commitment. If you really want to be a part of the solution for our nation and the solution for the people that are, are hopeless around us, you really want to be a part of the solution, I'm challenging you to fast at least one. One meal's nothing. Fast one meal a week from now on. So that's a long commitment. Just make a commitment to start. They're worth that. They're worth a meal. I also want to challenge you to do this, to write out the reason you have hope in Jesus. Write it out. Learn how to articulate it. Learn how to speak to someone that doesn't believe like you believe. Write out your testimony. Why you came to Christ. What a difference He's made. I challenge you to do it. I'm just going to be so bold as to say how many of you will make those two commitments. Raise your hand. I'll make that commitment. I'll start fasting one meal a week and I will I'll learn how to articulate my hope and my story how Jesus has changed my life. So I'll be ready. I'll be ready with words and not just love and acts of service. I'll be ready, not just with prayers, but I'll be ready to articulate my hope. Father, you see hands, you see hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, energize your people. Break our heart with compassion for the lost and the broken and the bound and the deceived and the dysfunctional in our culture and in our circles of influence. Give us a sense of urgency knowing the time is short and the stakes are, uh, are so high. 
Give us a confidence you can and will use us to affect people's lives toward Jesus. Give us wisdom how to navigate all the gnarly stuff we deal with in our culture. God, how to love and speak truth without condemning or, 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 or hating on people, Lord. And God, give us courage. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. Why don't you help us spread hope and go down there and eat with us today? God bless you. Thank you.